And welcome to Medical Motherhood for August 27th, 2023. I'm Shasta Kearns-Moore. Medical Motherhood brings you up to date each Sunday morning on news relevant to those raising disabled and neurodivergent children. Please consider a paid subscription to support my continuing freelance reporting on these topics too. You can do that online at medicalmotherhood.com. We have a very special episode this week. On Thursday, NPR published an investigation into Medicaid money in schools that I have been co-reporting with my friend Emily Harris for many months now. And I have special permission from NPR to read the entire piece for you here today. This is what they call the digital version, which is only available in writing on NPR.org. Emily's seven-minute radio version, which ran on Morning Edition, is also available online through the link to NPR.org on Medical Motherhood. This one will just be me voicing our source's quotes, because I don't have the technical skills that she does to produce a radio piece. But I hope you all enjoy it. Seven-year-old Winnie Hoyt sits nestled in her mother's lap in a therapy room at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. She's dressed in a lavender romper that sets off her soft brown eyes and smacks her lips occasionally while her mom and her speech-language pathologist fiddle with settings on an iPad-like device hovering in her line of sight. After some adjustments, Winnie flicks her eyes over to the right spot, and the two women cheer when Moana's You're Welcome starts to play. A year into these appointments, Winnie is finally getting comfortable with this eye gaze device. A small camera tracks her pupils so she can use them like a mouse to make selections on the screen. Winnie was born with a rare genetic condition that impairs her ability to walk and speak, and her parents are hoping this new technology can give her a voice. Our biggest goal in life is to get Winnie her yes-no, Mom Jenny Eckert Hoyt said. We know that communication will follow once she's able to make all her choices. This eye gaze technology plays an important role in helping Winnie communicate, but only if she has opportunities to freely explore it with a trained instructor kind of like she is right now, explained her speech-language pathologist, Stephanie Crawford. Unfortunately, those opportunities have been limited. Winnie's school district, Portland Public Schools, does have an eye gaze machine, but her mom said Winnie is only able to work on it about 30 minutes a week at school due to staffing. It could be more. Because of her disability, Winnie qualifies for Medicaid, The federal program could help pay for her to get more practice time with the eye gaze, but PPS stopped billing Medicaid years ago. In an email to NPR last spring, the district said the cumbersome billing took time away from providing critical and time-sensitive services in schools. Now Portland and many other school districts around the country have a new opportunity to recoup millions or even billions in health care costs. Medicaid officials hope they'll take it. Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, better known as CHIP, covers over 42 million kids because of their family's low income or, like Winnie, due to disability. 
A lot of their health care is provided through clinics and hospitals. But for decades, Medicaid has also allowed schools to bill for certain health services that they provide. In 2022, federal and state Medicaid programs spent $6.6 billion in schools, mostly for services provided to students with disabilities, like Winnie, such as nursing or speech therapy. But Medicaid officials want schools to know the program can also pitch in for things like mental health services and treatments for common ailments like asthma and diabetes. In May, the Public Health Insurance Program announced new guidance that has the potential to massively expand payments for health care in schools. But only if schools and states step up. Dan Sy, Deputy Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services, said the new guidance is designed to streamline the process of school-based billing and increase students' access to health care. You can imagine various barriers where you have a single working parent with a young child trying to find a way to get to a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day for a routine wellness visit or screening, Sai said. Now, imagine that can actually be provided in the school setting. Children could get health care without leaving school, and schools could get millions of dollars more for health specialists and services. Sai said, not only is it efficient, but it's probably one of the most effective ways we can reach a broad set of populations, in particular, kids and school-aged youth who are in underserved communities. Because Medicaid is a state-federal partnership, participation and financing can vary widely. In 2021, Texas reported getting $741 million from the federal program, for school-based health care and Medicaid-related activities, such as getting kids signed up. Chicago Public Schools, the nation's fourth-largest school district with 322,000 students, said it gets about $40 million a year from Medicaid. Meanwhile, schools in Wyoming couldn't start billing for any school-based services until 2022. It's hard to know how many U.S. schools are already billing Medicaid. In a recent survey, University of Washington researcher Mayumi Wilgerot put that question to school nurses. Out of 2,428 responses, 34% said their schools did not bill, and 42% confirmed they did. The rest were uncertain. Wilgerot estimated a little more than half of the country's schools bill some services to Medicaid, The yeses were more common in the West and Midwest, and less common in the South and Northeast. All 50 states concurrently bill Medicaid for medical services provided to students with disabilities in schools. But in order for schools to also bill Medicaid for Medicaid-enrolled low-income students, and thus more fully take advantage of the changes announced in May, states need to take action by updating their Medicaid plans, and or updating state-level policies. A spokesperson for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services said 14 states, including Oregon and Illinois, have already updated their Medicaid plans with the federal government. He could not confirm the additional number of states that have updated their state-level policies. But the Healthy Schools Campaign, which advocates for broader Medicaid funding in schools, put that number at eight. Tsai hopes other states will soon follow. We're establishing a federal framework, Tsai said. 
If none of the states want to make it more flexible for schools to utilize this, we can't force them to. How much money might schools be missing out on? You're talking about things on the order of magnitude of billions, I said. Since 1975, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act has guaranteed children the right to a free public education, even if they have a disability that makes their education more expensive than average. Congress promised to fund 40% of those needs, but it's never even come close. In 2020, the National Education Association calculated the rate was just 13.2%. Since 1988, Medicaid has slowly, though not completely, helped backfill for that lack of funding, allowing schools get to get reimbursed for certain IDEA-required services, such as physical therapy for a child in a wheelchair. But schools aren't always taking advantage. Despite months of inquiries to districts in Oregon and across the nation, few officials would speak plainly and on the record about what's stopping them. In an unsigned, emailed statement last spring, Winnie School District, Portland Public Schools, described numerous barriers. Primary among them, the staff didn't think the burdensome process was worth it. Wendy Niskanen, a board member for the National Association of School Nurses, echoed that concern. Right now, the barriers are just too great for most districts to do it, she said. Niskanen said schools aren't doctor's offices, so they're not set up with the right training or software to do the kind of billing and documentation Medicaid requires. It's a complaint Medicaid officials like Dan Tsai have heard from districts around the country. You have to bill for health care services in the same way that a hospital or doctor's office would bill, and most schools don't happen to have a me medical expert coder sitting around, he said. The changes Sai and his team announced in May are meant to help address those challenges. Niskanen said health providers in schools need a modern and universal electronic record system for Medicaid billing to be worth it. We don't want to have to write our treatment in one place and then put it into a portal in another place, she said. We want to be able to have that in the same system. One universal system would require a large initial investment, but Niskanen said figuring out how to efficiently bill Medicaid will pay dividends to the entire student body, regardless of whether they're covered by the program. Medicaid money can only be spent on kids that it insures, but if new reimbursements pay for, say, half a school nurse or psychologist, the district might be able to swing the other half and so help all students more. It's not just for those students in special education, Niskanen said. Those students need it. We're required to provide those services for those students. But the need is so much broader, and we need to be able to make sure we're addressing school health so that students can be in school safe and ready to learn. Niskanen recalled an experience at a conference when nurses erupted in cheers after they learned Georgia had started billing Medicaid and the amount of funds that they received from doing that completely changed the landscape of school nursing in that state. I get chills just thinking about it. I know this is the solution, Niskanen said. In 2021, Georgia schools received $45.7 million in federal dollars from Medicaid, both for direct services and administrative duties. 
Niskin in hopes other schools will follow Georgia's example. There's a lot of things that can happen when we don't have the funding, she explained. One of them is to say to a student, we don't have a nurse for you. You can't come to school. It's not just nurses. Medicaid can pay for specialists to support children with behavioral or mental health issues. In Oregon, a report by court-appointed experts found that about 1,000 children in special education were unable to attend full-time school in the 2019-2020 school year, in part due to the lack of appropriate staffing. That's a massive violation of civil rights, Niskanen said. Chicago schools have already been getting tens of millions of dollars from Medicaid. Thanks to a recent update to Illinois' state Medicaid plan, the district can take advantage of the changes Medicaid announced in May and get millions more. This is for services already being provided, said Katherine Yeager, the school system's billing specialist. Schools already need to offer students diabetes management, medication administration, asthma control, and other health care. And then, as we look outside of that, we'll be looking at things like crisis intervention services, other types of mental and behavioral health supports that the school district also provides, Yeager said. That was the intention of the federal legislation that brought about this year's Medicaid changes. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act aims to get more mental health supports into schools to help address gun violence and the stem the tide of the youth mental health crisis. That law helped pave the way for new guidance and a technical assistance center that will help ease the billing process for schools. Jenny Millward, executive director of the National Alliance for Medicaid and Education, hopes states and schools will act fast to adopt these latest changes. My hope is just that with the release of these guidelines and the momentum that we have in the next three to five years, we're going to be able to expand this program and what it can do across the nation, Millward said. Schools might not even know that everything that's allowable at the federal level because a lot of times schools just operate within their silo. Millward said her organization is working hard to push out this information, including that schools could get funding for mental health services. With any program, there's going to be administrative work that has to be done to meet the requirements of the program to get your reimbursement, she acknowledged. I know that that's a concern and likely a big reason why school districts would choose to not participate or to stop participating in the program. But if schools and states can manage to work together, Millward sees the potential for healthier children whose mental and physical health needs are caught earlier, reducing the need for costly interventions like emergency room visits and 911 calls. That would be, to me, the greatest outcome that this could have, she said. Winnie's mom, Jenny Eckert-Hoyt, has another great outcome in mind, getting her daughter more in-school time with the eye gaze machine and a trained instructor. That may be close to happening. Because of this year's changes, Portland Public Schools said it now plans to start billing Medicaid again. It's not yet clear what that will mean for Winnie this school year, but not having to leave school for services would be a big win for the seven-year-old. When Eckert Hoyt brought her daughter to her classroom last spring, Winnie was laughing and smiling. She loves school, her mom says. There's just no doubt about it. That was Schools Could Be Getting Millions More from Medicaid, Why Aren't They?, which published on August 24, 2023, on NPR.org. The digital story was written by Shasta Kearns-Moore. The audio story written by Emily Harris. 
It was edited by Nicole Cohen. The audio story was produced by Lauren Mikagi and Janet Wujong Lee. Visual design and development by L.A. Johnson. Time now for Medical Motherhood's News Roundup with news and opinion from outlets around the world. From Spectrum News in New York, two-thirds of schools are not fully accessible to those with physical disabilities, report finds. A new report from Advocates for Children found that two-thirds of the city's public schools are not fully accessible to people with physical disabilities. There are more than 1,400 school buildings in New York City, some of them housing multiple schools. This school year, only 34% of those school buildings are fully accessible. Nearly 20% are partially accessible. Almost 5% are not fully accessible but are in the pipeline for improvements. And 41% of buildings are fully or functionally inaccessible. AFC uses the term functionally inaccessible for buildings a wheelchair user may be able to enter, but which doesn't offer any classrooms on the first floor, meaning they're not an educational option for those students. A partially accessible school has classrooms a child can access, but they may be cut off from huge parts of the building. You might be able to get in the door, but there might be whole areas of the building that are totally off-limits. So you can't get into the science lab, you can't take that class, or you can't participate in certain clubs. You aren't a full member of the school community, said Sarah Part, senior policy analyst at Advocates for Children. While the numbers are stark, they represent an improvement from 2018, when AFC found just 19.5% of schools were fully accessible. That, along with a 2015 investigation from then-U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, spurred the city to invest $750 million in its capital plan to make improvements. From Home Health Care News, home-based care providers break down unintended consequences of CMS's proposed Medicaid rule. A proposed rule from the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, which would require at least 80% of Medicaid reimbursement for home and community-based services go toward worker compensation, received over 2,100 submissions during its public comment period. Many of the comments included gratitude and appreciation for CMS regarding its efforts to enhance the HCBS workforce. But concerns persist over how the rule would affect HCBS providers across the country. Like many of his colleagues across the industry, Addis Home Care Corporation Executive Vice President Darby Anderson wrote and reiterated what others have told Home Health Care News when the proposed rule came out, that implementing a standard minimum percentage threshold without studying the potential impacts of the 80% rule will likely result in unintended consequences. Those consequences could include smaller providers going out of business and larger providers leaving certain markets, thus reducing access to care. More clarity on what CMS ultimately plans to do should come in the third or fourth quarter of this year. From the Oklahoma City Sentinel, accessible smart home technology available for Oklahomans with disabilities. 
Oklahoma Human Services, in collaboration with Able Tech and Bethany Children's Health Center, have opened up two smart home demonstration sites to showcase remote support and enabling technologies for families on the Developmental Disabilities Services waitlist, as well as families already on DD services. A smart home allows individuals to control appliances, thermostats, lights, and other devices remotely using a smartphone or tablet connected to the Internet. The home also features assistive technologies such as wheelchair ramps, a roll-in shower, and widened doorways to increase accessibility and safety. The smart home features enabling technologies designed for remotely controlling appliances, dispensing medications, and detecting seizures, the result being increased safety and convenience for the user. From video doorbells to induction stovetops and grab bars, these technologies empower individuals with disabilities to navigate their daily routines with greater confidence. In addition, the smart home offers remote support options as well, highlighting how the increased independence afforded by these technologies allows for individuals to be supported by off-site staff rather than in-home care. Medical Motherhood brings you quality news and information for raising disabled and neurodivergent children. Get it delivered to your inbox each Sunday morning or give a gift subscription. Subscriptions are free with optional tiers of support. Thank you to our paid subscribers. Follow Medical Motherhood on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, or Pinterest. The podcast is also available in your feeds on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Visit the Medical Motherhood merchandise store through a link on our website. Do you have a story to share or an injustice that needs investigation? Tell me about it, and it may become a future issue. Thank you for listening. Our music was composed by Ehimitsu and used under a Creative Commons license. Oh, my God, all day.